My name is Tiffany Connor, and this is my testimony. I am the mother of two children. My son, Jordan, is seven, and my daughter, Mariah, is five. I was married to Jordan and Mariah's father for nine and a half years. We met when we were in our early 20s. I remember when we first started dating that I thought our relationship was a bit cliche. We came from different social circles. In high school, I was a quiet girl who went to church, followed all the rules, and got good grades. Their father was outgoing, very popular, and on the high school football team. We met, started dating, and a year and a half later, we were married. Our marriages was like a lot of other marriages. We had a lot of good times together, and we also went through some trials. Even though not every day in our marriage was great, I don't think I ever fully prepared myself for a day that would come that we weren't married. One day in January 2015, that day came. I woke up that day knowing things had been extra hard the last while, but still had the hope that things would turn around. By 9 a.m. on that day, I knew my marriage was over and my future was going to look a lot different very soon. My whole world came crashing down around me. Everything I had known for the last decade was changing. My husband was moving out. We had to sit down and have a conversation with our two young children about the fact that their dad would no longer be living with us. They didn't understand, and at the time, neither could I. My heart was shattered. I didn't know it was possible to feel that much pain and not have any physical scars to show for it. I felt like I had failed. I felt broken and rejected. I was so unsure about the future. I thought I'd wear the title of divorced for the rest of my life. I was emotionally exhausted, but had to keep it together the best I could for the kids. They were sad and confused about the changes and they needed a mom who could comfort them. The kids, routine, and my full-time job is what kept me going those first few months. I remember one Sunday afternoon, about six months after the separation, I dropped the kids off at a birthday party and came home. I made it as far as the kitchen and sat down on the kitchen floor. I cried for the next 90 minutes until it was time to pick them up. It was six months later and I still felt that much hurt and pain. Time had passed and I got better at hiding it from friends and family, but the truth was I was still very much heartbroken. It was a couple weeks later that I stumbled upon Joshua 1.5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God used this promise he made to Joshua to speak to my heart that day. I had grown up in the church. I accepted Jesus into my heart when I was five years old. As soon as I was out of high school, I rarely attended church. I started going again occasionally once my children were born, but it was more for them than it was for me. I always believed in God and God was a part of my family. I can't honestly say that I had a personal relationship with him. Looking back, I, I would relate my relationship with God as a distant uncle that you chat with a few times a year. I never treated him like my father. I never depended on him. It wasn't until I faced my darkest season that I finally turned to him. After reading Joshua 1.5, I picked up the Bible. I read it like I'd read it for the first time. I could feel God speaking to me through his word. A couple of months later, I attended divorce care at Brunswick Street Baptist Church. God used this wonderful ministry filled with wonderful people to heal my heart and point me towards him even more. Christmas Eve night, 2015, after the kids went to bed, I sat down on the couch with a plate of nachos. The day before, I had been on Facebook and a few social media clicks landed me on my very first Crosspoint sermon. I wasn't searching for a sermon. I could have easily watched Netflix. God knew I needed to hear this message. Pastor Jamie preached a sermon called Falling Into Place. It was about Joseph and his journey through the Christmas story. The line that spoke to me the most was when Jamie said, 
for us, when it seems like our world is falling apart, God's will is actually falling into place. And that's really hard for us to understand sometimes, because in our view, in our color blindness, we see the way things the way we want to see them. We see them with our thoughts, and we see them with our opinions. We see them with our circumstances. And then God's like, hold on a second, just because it looks like your world is falling apart, maybe my will is actually falling into place. What I've learned over the past year is that while divorce is part of my story, it is not my entire story. My life is so much more than that one dark season. God has given me the opportunity to use my story to help others by becoming a leader with the Divorce Care Program. I also have been given the opportunity to serve in kids' ministry here at Crosspoint, which I'm very thankful for. One of my regrets is that it took me over 30 years before I let Jesus in my heart completely. If you have never made a decision to follow Jesus, or if you have but haven't put him first in your life, please consider doing so. It's not too late. When I was in the middle of everything, I could not see how any good could come out of this situation. God did not cause a divorce, but God has turned a season of pain to something positive and beautiful. I am filled with the love God has for me. I have found peace. I see things differently now. I have recommitted my life to the Lord. He has changed my priorities. He has changed the way I parent. He has changed the way I look at people and the way I love people. He has changed me. No matter what trials I face going forward, I know I will never do it alone. God will be with me every step of the way. Who decides what is the best? Right, like the best. When something's the best, what you're saying, that that very word means that it is the most excellent, it's the most superior, it holds the highest position on a list of things, there's not one higher than it, it is the best. And so we kind of use this word all the time. Every year you'll see people come up with their best of lists and their best books and their best movies. And every year we hand out awards. Well, we don't, but people hand out awards for the, the best picture and the best director, best actor, best actress. We're saying all these other ones are good, but these ones, it was really the best one. And they actually have awards now for the worst movie, the worst actor, the worst actress. They're called the Razzies. Sometimes celebrities will actually show up in good, good fun to kind of accept their award and say, yeah, no, this was terrible and I was in it, but sometimes you need a paycheck. So they were the worst best, or the best worst. But who decides that? It's such a hard word. Well, who's best? My best? Your best? If I were to ask you what the best hockey team is, I would get a whole bunch of different answers. There's a team that's gonna win that trophy a month from now, but you know what? There's gonna be a lot of people that'll be like, yeah, they won the cup, but they weren't the best. I mean, they won it because of all these reasons and circumstances, but on the paper, according to my analytics, they weren't the best team. We've got differing, varying opinions on what is the best. If I were to ask what's the best genre of music, I would get a whole bunch of different answers. Some of you would say country music, you'd be wrong. It, see, country music is the best worst. It's the worst best, right? Who, who decides, who gets to pick this stuff? It's hard because we see these words everywhere. It's plastered on every product on the shelves. You hear the commercials, it's this car is its best in class. You can go get a TV at the best buy. You go to Walmart and buy their brand, it's the best value. I don't know if Walmart socks are the best value, right? Like, I'm not entirely certain I would call anything there the best. 
But it's hard. We, we see this word all the time, and we use it for everything. I would be guilty very frequently of saying everything is the best. Hey, Mark, did you see that new movie? Oh, it was the best. How was lunch today? The best. I probably found leftover food in the church fridge and reheated it. So for me to call it the best means I have very low standards or I'm using the word wrong. What is the best? See, the problem is that if everything is the best, nothing is the best. So what is the most excellent, the most superior? So we're in this series where we're talking about the names of God. And already we've talked about how God says, I am the redeemer. Last week we talked about how God said, I am your healer. This week we're going to talk about a name that God has given where he says, I am God the most high. He calls himself El Elyon, which means I am the most high, meaning I am God, the most excellent, most superior, the greatest. There, there is none more capable, none more large, none more knowledgeable, none more powerful than me. I am God, the best. That is a name that he has given all throughout scripture, that he is God most high, the God who, who spoke everything into existence. That the God who carved the highest mountain and said, I'm higher than that. The God who dug out the deepest part of the ocean and said, I put it there and it wasn't over my head. That the God who put that one tiny grain of sand in the middle of the Sahara Desert that no human has ever walked on. He's like, yeah, no, I did that. He is God Almighty, the supreme ruler over all creation. Who can do those things? Only him, the best. Only God most high. He wants us to know that. It's important that we know that. Again, we see this in the Ten Commandments. We've talked about this already, this series, but those first two commandments are so key. The first one being, I am the Lord. The second one being, don't make other gods, because it's me. Right? That, that commandment number two is basically God's way of saying, reread number one. I am the only God. I am the most excellent, superior, supreme ruler over everything. And if you forgot, commandment number two is a helpful reminder. It's me. He is God most high. And he wants us to know that. He wants us to worship him like that. It's important that we wrap our heads around that. And so we're going to talk about that today. We're going to look at a pretty crazy story in the Bible, which, which are the best. Those are my favorite. Uh, it's in Daniel chapter 4, if you have your Bibles. Uh, we're going to be looking at a man named King Nebuchadnezzar. And, and King Nebuchadnezzar was your classic, overly powerful, narcissistic, authoritarian politician. This guy loved himself. He loved to conquer places. He loved to make himself king of those places. He loved to be bowed down when he went to those places. I mean, he was that kind of leader. Um, in fact, here's a picture of, of King Nebuchadnezzar right here. Look at that guy. We took this from his Instagram account. <laughs> And, I mean, this guy, this guy's got a professional barber. He perms his beard. Only the greatest in gold-lined silk and all of the other jewelry, like King Nebuchadnezzar, loves himself. And, in fact, if you remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego about how everyone had to bow down to a king or they would be thrown into a furnace, that's the king. Imagine being so full of yourself that if someone didn't bow down, it was an offense worthy of death. King Nebuchadnezzar is that guy. See, that's a problem when you think you're the best, but God has already laid claim to that title. 
When you have elevated yourself to the highest and greatest, you're gonna run into some issues because God has already clearly said, no, that's me, and there aren't other ones. And so we read this story. Here, here's what happens to King Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel 4, verse 29. You'll get a good picture of him here. It says, 12 months later, he was taking a walk on the flat roof of the royal palace in Babylon. As he looked out across the city, he said, look at this great city of Babylon by my own power. I have built this beautiful city as my royal residence to display my majestic splendor. This guy has 48 mirrors in his bedroom. Verse 31, while these words were still in his mouth, a voice called down from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, this message is for you. You are no longer ruler of this kingdom. You will be driven from human society. You will live in the fields with wild animals and you will eat grass like a cow. Seven periods of time will pass while you live this way until you learn that the most high rules over the kingdoms of the world and gives them to anyone he chooses. That same hour, the judgment was fulfilled. Nebuchadnezzar was driven from human society. He ate grass like a cow, and he was drenched with the dew of heaven. He lived this way until his hair was as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. So let's pause here for a minute, because so far, so awesome. This is a great story. King Nebuchadnezzar becomes an animal man, walking around on all fours, eating grass out of his mind. Uh, in fact, one of the greatest artistic renditions of this was done by a really famous painter, William Blake. Look at this picture. So let's go back, you know, to that first one where permed beard, and then you look at this one, and, and you can see we have fallen just a little bit. Though I will say, it is a nice beard and he's ripped now. But other than that, right, this guy's got crazy long nails. He's out of his mind. In fact, if you want to get a, a more artistic rendition, uh, there's also this one right here of <laughs> King Nebi. We watched VeggieTales for their authentic portrayals of scripture. <laughs> that is where his pride and his arrogance have gotten him. And the story goes on, verse 34. After this time had passed, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven. My sanity returned, and I praised and worshipped the Most High and honored the one who lives forever. His rule is everlasting, and his kingdom is eternal. All the people of earth are nothing compared to him. He does as he pleases among the angels of heaven and among the people of earth. No one can stop him or say to him, what do you mean by doing these things? When my sanity returned to me, so did my honor and glory and kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out. I was restored as head of my kingdom with even greater honor than before. But now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and glorify and honor the king of heaven. And all his acts are just and true and he is able to humble the proud. So King Nebuchadnezzar has a bit of a significant turnaround. This guy has done a pretty huge 180 from just a chapter ago, demanding that people bow before him as if he was a god. And here we are seven years later, and he is now choosing to worship God. And he even uses the words, there is no human that even comes close to being comparable to you. 
I mean, what a fool I was to think that, that I was somehow the greatest, that I had somehow built the city of my own skill and my own talent, that I was somehow worthy to be someone that, that was praised and worshipped. I, I was out of my mind, literally. And he comes full circle, and he understands that God is the only one. He is God, he uses this phrase, God the Most High. And so there are two responses that, that we can kind of go through when we are confronted with the idea that God is most high. One is that we are humbled, and the second is that we should be encouraged. When you understand that God is most high, we should be humbled, but also encouraged. We, we should be humbled. Let's talk about that for a minute, because really this serves as a warning in some ways, doesn't it? That this is really a warning for all of us to not forget who is the most high God. And also we should be encouraged to not forget that he is the most high God. So humbling, uh, we, we need this reminder sometimes because we can all be a little bit Nebuchadnezzar-ish. You can use that word from here on out. Nebuchadnezzar-ish. We, we can all get that way. Just It happens so subtly, but all of a sudden you find yourself at the center of your own world where you are now the most important thing. You get what you want, all of the attention is on you. All the conversations are happening about you. All of the social media posts you read somehow must be linking back to you. You're not just at the center of your life. You're at, you're at the center of everyone else's life. And you live for your preferences, your desires, what you want. And when you don't get it, things get hard. We can all get there pretty easily, can't we? And what happens when we do that is that we have elevated ourselves to being the most high in our own life. We have decided that we are the one who sits in the power seat of our life. That we are the ones that are controlling the things in our life. And, and really, that's sin. See, sin is nothing more than a declaration that what you want is more important than anything else. Sin is you deciding that I'm gonna, I'm gonna do what I want even if it comes at the expense of someone else even though it might be wrong, even though it might have negative impact on my own life, I'm, I'm going to do what I want. That's sin. I mean, you could really go so far as to say that, that pride is at the root of every single sin because it's a selfish decision that you are making for your own desires. It's all about you. So the sin of gluttony is saying, I want more for myself. The sin of adultery is saying, I want this even though there's boundaries. There's the sin of gossip, and it's saying, I'm going to say what I want, even though it might hurt other people. There's the sin of greed, saying, this is all for me, even though God's asking me to be generous. Do you see there's pride at the root of every sin? And you are making the decision to make yourself the highest and greatest, the most important. So you can give yourself a selfish root and make yourself the one who sits on the throne. I mean, it makes sense that pride would be there at the root of every sin because that's where sin comes from in the first place. This is what got the devil kicked out of heaven. I mean, it all goes back to this moment in heaven where, where the devil was actually an angel. And, and he was involved in, in helping lead people, uh, other angels, to worship God. But it was not enough for him to be in heaven with God. He wanted to be above God. He wanted to be God. And so he, he becomes a little bit Nebuchadnezzar-ish. In fact, it's probably more accurate to say Nebuchadnezzar became a little more Satan-ish. But, 
So here's what happens. We read about it in Isaiah 14. Verse 12, speaking about the devil, says, How you are fallen from heaven. O shining star, son of the morning, you have been thrown down to the earth, for you destroyed the nations of the world. For you said to yourself, I will ascend to heaven and set my throne above God's stars. I will preside on the mountain of the gods, far away in the north. I will climb to the highest mountains and be like the most high. There's that title again. It says, instead, you will be brought down to the place of the dead, down to its lowest depths. And everyone there will stare at you and ask, can this be the one who shook the earth and made the kingdoms of the world tremble? See, the idea that, that we should be more important and more significant, that my priorities should be above anyone else's priorities, when you live that way, when you live selfishly and pridefully and arrogantly, that is when you are the most like the devil. You look the most like Satan when you live your life all about you. It is the complete antithesis of what God wants. It is the complete opposite of what God expects and demands of his people. But it makes sense for us because we're born into that way. We're born to be selfish. It's when you're babies, that's all you know. You have to scream to get your own way. Some of the, you know, your kid's first words, one of them was probably mine. My. And when you don't get my, you throw a fit. It's like those seagulls on Finding Nemo. Mine. And how many, how many people do you know live like mine? But this is the complete opposite of what God expects from his kids. Jesus comes along and he says really hard things like this. Matthew 6, Seek the kingdom of God above all else. Above all else. And live righteously and he will give you everything you need. Matthew 16, 24, Jesus says, If any of you want to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways. Take up your cross and follow me. See, we are not the Most High. We are here to serve the Most High. We are here to worship the Most High. We are here to, to lift the Most High's name even higher. That is our job. But that comes as a result of us making ourselves less and less. That's how we do that. In fact, John 3.30, it says, he must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. This is how it works. This is the way that it's supposed to go, where I actually now give myself away, I give my preferences away, I make my priorities the least important, first is last, last is first, he needs to be greater and I need to be less. It's the complete opposite of making yourself the best. And so the question I want to ask us today is, is your picture a life of you becoming less and less? Is that what your life currently look like? Does it look like you becoming less and less and Jesus becoming greater and greater? It's a hard question, but it's got a pretty easy answer. All you have to do is look at your budget. You have to look at your calendar. You have to look at how you currently function as a family and what your priorities are. You just look at your short-term goals, you look at your long-term goals, you put it all together and you ask yourself, does this lead to me becoming less and less and him becoming greater and greater? And if not, what do I need to change? 
Right, you could almost look at it this way. If you were to hire an outside professional consulting firm to come into your life, look at all of the details of your life, and then tell you what is the most important thing, would they be able to determine that it was Jesus Christ? Well, that's hard, isn't it? Are you becoming less and less? Is your lifestyle arranged in such a way that that is the result you're getting because if not then scripture says no seek first above all else the kingdom of god don't live for your selfish ways you need to become less and less and these are hard questions but he is the god most high not i he he is the only one worthy of that title and that position and he will humble us if we need for that to happen that's what he did to Nebuchadnezzar. That's also a biblical promise. If you find yourself setting yourself that high up, James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He opposes. That means God would be your opponent. I don't ever want to be in a spot in my life where God is my opponent. He will win. I don't know if you ever played sports, but you, you went onto the rink or the field that day and you knew you were playing that team that was way better, super stacked, all the parents rigged it so that all the best kids were on the same team. And you're like, ah, oh, there's no way we're winning this one, right? Like, that's what it'd be like when, when you set yourself up to a prideful position and you look across at who your opponent is, it is the most high. You will lose that fight. He says, I will oppose the proud. Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goes before destruction and haughtiness before a fall. See, it's not just that pride is bad. Pride is an invitation to be humbled. And so we need to recognize that God is the most high. And so our first challenge is to make sure that your life is set up in such a way that that's what's happening. You need to make sure that, that your calendar, your budget, your priorities, your values, the decisions you are making are all making sure, does, does this put the kingdom of God first? Does this decision put the kingdom of God first today for my kids, for my family, for my job? Am I ensuring that that's how I'm setting my life up? Easy to say, hard to do. But he needs to be first in our life. The second part of recognizing that God is most high is that should really just serve as encouragement. That, that should be incredibly encouraging for us to know that it is God who sits on the throne and not anybody else. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar says, when my sanity returned, he goes on to say, I realized all of his acts are just and true. It should be reassuring to know that the one who is the most high is a good God. That he is a loving, kind, faithful, patient, just God. There is nothing that happens without his knowledge. There is nothing that he is surprised by. There, there is nothing that happens that's outside his authority. He is the most high, but he's good. And so we should be encouraged by the fact that he is good. Think about it like this. If anyone else was in God's position, that would be terrifying. If, if there was any other human that you could pluck off of the planet and say, you now have the authority and the power of God himself, would you not be terrified? I mean, that, that would be frightening. Have you, ever had, have you ever had control over something and you had to hand it off to someone and you were like, oh man, you're going to do it wrong. You're not going to do it my way. This is going to go terribly. Makes me really nervous. Have you ever been there? 
I imagine this is what it's like as a parent to hand the keys to the car to your kid that first time and you get in the driver's side and they start driving and you're like, why are you doing it that way? Why didn't you do this first? No, fix your mirror. No, why? Turn your blinker on. Why would you? You're not doing it my way. I imagine this is what it's like to some degree maybe if you're a teacher and you have to hand your class over to a supply teacher, right? Like, if, oh, I think that would be really hard. Our kids come home some days. We're like, how was school? We had a supply, she didn't know anything. We're just like, well, have a little patience, right? It might've been her first time in that school in her life and she had to deal with you, right? Like that's hard. It makes us uncomfortable when someone new or different takes control over something and we don't trust them. I'm the only one in my home. I am the master at, at loading the dishwasher the correct way. There is a right way. There is a right way and a wrong way. And I know how to do it to such a degree that I have optimal spacing. It's optimal. I know that the mugs line up like this with the handles the right way so you can put the other cups beside them and then the little cups for the kids go there and then on the bottom the bowls are like sideways so that the dishes, see, I know, you're all with me right now. And listen, I am always grateful when someone else loads the dishwasher, but they do it wrong. <laughs> so. It's hard to hand over control to someone that you wouldn't necessarily trust or think that they're going to do it right. Can you imagine then if God relinquished his control to anyone else and had them lead? How scary would that be to give any human complete authority over all creation? that they would somehow be the supreme ruler over everything, that they would give themselves that kind of power, they would cause disasters for their enemies, they would make the weather fit their own plans, all their sports teams would win, all of their enemies' teams would lose. I mean, you just think about how petty we can be as humans. Just unbelievably petty. If someone had, if you woke up with God's power, your enemies would wake up tomorrow with like 38 zits, their car would run out of gas on the bridge, their pants would be four sizes too short, right? Like you were just so rude and mean. Sovereignty in the hands of anyone else would be terrifying. Aren't you glad that it's in the hands of God most high? That, that he is the one who rules over it all, but his hand is good. He leads with faith and justice and righteousness, that he is patient with us. To be reminded of that should encourage us. It should be the thing that, that keeps you grounded and reassured. It should be the thing that, that gets you out of bed, even in the hard days, knowing full well that, that the guy who's holding this is good and he's going to work it out for me. He is God most high. That should encourage us, and, and it should really be a daily reminder because how quickly we forget that, isn't it? See, we only see the things that happen in our lives in little bits and pieces. You only see little glimpses, little pockets. We, we don't get the full picture, but God does. We're limited by so many things. We're, we're limited by our own knowledge. We're limited by space. We're limited by time. God's outside all that stuff. He knows how it's all going to work. He's got it all figured out in his head. And so we don't need to panic. We don't need to stress. We don't need to worry. Because God Most High has got it under control. Paul wrote this, 1 Corinthians 13, 12. It says, now we see things imperfectly. Remember that line, now, right now, 
Everything you see, you see it imperfectly. Like puzzling reflections in a mirror. But then we will see everything with perfect clarity. Right? Meaning that you're not ever going to see anything with perfect clarity till it's all said and done. So if you're looking for perfect clarity for why this happened, where you're going, what decision led to this, and why is this all, you might never know. You won't have perfect clarity until then. He goes on to say, all that I know now is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely, just as God now knows me completely. We see things imperfectly. It's such a good reminder for us, especially when you're the one who's arguing and fighting that you're right. How many times do we find ourselves, no, I'm right in this one. I'm going to win this argument. What I think is right, what I think about religion's right, what I think about politics is right, what I think about healthcare is right, and the government's right, I'm right. A, a great reminder, a, gr a great way to end any argument is to say, yeah, well, you see things imperfectly. We all do. Your best guess is imperfect. Your most knowledgeable estimate is imperfect. Your most accurate conclusion is imperfect. The smartest man or woman on the planet with the highest IQ, their knowledge is partial and incomplete. There is only one who knows it all, and he is God most high. And he is good and faithful and just, and so he is the one who can work it out. So whatever you're feeling right now, currently in your life, that's only partial and incomplete. It's not the full story. It's not necessarily how it's going to end. Recognize that God Most High has it in control. Our assumptions for how we think it's going to work out and why it's going to backfire, our tendency to be negative all the time about everything, be reminded that He is God Most High and that he is good and he's working it out for your favor. Where we see pain and darkness, he sees how it ends. Where, where we see confusion and worry and stress, he sees a decade down the road how that's all gonna lead you to this better spot. He knows what he's doing. It's like what Tiffany said in her video, that the hardest moment of my life actually led me back to Jesus, changed everything. I thought my world was falling apart but it was actually falling into place. See, in, in my pain, I only saw little glimpses, but it was after the fact that I saw what God was doing. He's God most high, the sovereign ruler over all creation, and he loves you, and he's good. So no matter what your life looks like today, you can be reassured in that truth that, that he is for you, Proverbs 3, 5, says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. I mean, how many times have we done that? Depend on your own understanding. You, you don't need to believe every thought that enters your brain. Sometimes they're not all right. Fun fact, sometimes the things you think are wrong, right? You're not God the most high. You, you are not the supreme ruler over all creation. You are not omniscient. And so what we should do instead of focusing on our own inability and imperfections is to look to the one who is perfect and does know and is good. And this should keep us grounded and secure. There is nothing unjust that will stay just when God is the most high God. Evil will not prevail because God is the most high God.
Death's day is numbered because God is the most high God. And he's working things out for your life because God is the most high God. So no matter how painful, confusing, or frustrating your tomorrow might be, don't worry, he's there and will carry you. And you might only see glimpses of why today, but maybe later he'll show you. He is God most high. That should humble us and remind us to make sure that he is on the throne in our own lives, but it should also encourage us to put our faith in him and to know that he can be trusted. And so I'm gonna pray for us today and the band is gonna come sing a final song that's really just a good reminder of that. And I want us to sing it. I want us to declare it. If you need to come pray about something today, come pray. We'll come pray with you. If you're struggling through a hard time, if you just need that reminder, then, then come on up and we'll pray for you. And he's good, isn't he? Aren't you grateful that he's good? Let me pray for us. Jesus, we're so grateful that you really are God the Most High. And what that means for me is that you are looking out for, for my best interests, for everyone's best interests. That the things that are happening in our lives, whether it's by your hand or, or some other reason, your hand is still going to be the thing that works it out. That there's no surprises for you. There's no way that, that evil wins when you're in control. There's no way this battle, the outcome doesn't change regardless of what happens tomorrow or the next day. We don't ever have to worry when you are at the helm. And so God, I pray for those that, that maybe today needed that reminder of humbling, that, that you would give them the courage and the boldness to rearrange their life so that they become less and less and you become greater. May that be said of our church and the way that we do things and the decisions that we make, that it would be about you, always you. And for those of us that are maybe struggling through a difficult season, may we be refreshed and encouraged knowing that you are the most excellent, superior, almighty, ruler, good, faithful, just, kind, loving Father. And so we're grateful. Give us your hope and your peace and your grace today. We ask it in the name of Jesus and the church said.